0: My name is C.J. Tassel, and you are listening to the Forge Leadership Podcast. Forge Leadership Network mentors, trains, and connects young conservatives ages 18 to 25, equipping them to lead in politics, culture, and business. For more information or to get involved, visit ForgeLeadership.org. On
1: time, I'm excited just to to introduce our next uh, speaker, who is now Congress, the former Congressman Bob McEwen had to, to speak in the. Uh, yeah, that's not you. Right? Okay. <laughs> Congressman Bob McEwen had to speak in the South Sudan this week. So that cleared the stage for Joseph back home to be the only seven-time Forge speaker. You are now the only Forge speaker to speak every year of our existence, and that is fitting uh, because Joseph uh, has been our students' favorite speaker. Uh, seven years running, based on their uh, their surveys. So undefeated, he has to keep coming back until he's dethroned. It's kind of like a <laughs> basketball when you play make it, take it. Um, That's right. <laughs> so That's Joseph right. is the senior fellow for biblical worldview and strategic engagement at Family Research Council, one of our summit sponsors this week. He combines extensive legal, political, and policy experience with a love for the way that biblical truth cultivates human flourishing. Previously. Joseph served as legal counsel and director and creator of What Would You Say, a video series at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, where he developed and launched a growing platform that creates short animated videos that that help Christians answer common questions about faith and culture. His YouTube career began, as some of you may have seen, as uh, five million have, have, have viewed, as a self-identified six foot five Chinese woman in a series of YouTube videos exploring the logic and the logical extensions of gender identity. He served as a legislative attorney for three years and spent 10 years as the president of and general counsel of the Family Institute of Washington, that's Washington State, where he managed educational, legislative, and electoral operations on behalf of life, marriage, religious freedom, and parental rights. We used to ask Joseph what the future was like in terms of the social legislation that was, was coming from the West Coast, he led three ballot initiatives on marriage and gender privacy. He's a Washington state native who loves travel, sports, and whatever his kids are into. Joseph received his bachelor's degree and his law his bachelor's degree from the University of Washington and his law degree from Seattle University. He and his lovely wife Brooke have four children who they uh, who they generously and sacrificially left behind the last two weeks to chaperone and be the faculty on our forge uh, academy students trip to Israel that got back on Sunday so fresh off the jet lag here's joseph Backhol.
0: <clears throat> well good afternoon i am uh, i'm thrilled to be here with you guys and, and it has been an eventful week Love to see uh, the growth of Forge. I did not know, Adam, that I am the only seven-time now speaker at Forge. And that has been a blessing for me, just to be able to see the growth of this and the vision that you and and Justin and and others had at the very beginning. And so many have now benefited from that, including myself. And it's just a, a real honor to be able to see it grow. So, in the next few minutes, we're going to talk about why social issues matter. And I want to um, set this conversation up by talking about, and did that toggle for you guys over there, because I can't see that? Okay, make sure we're synced up. Why ideas matter in general? And, and this is, you know, why do social issues matter? And we're gonna distinguish those from other issues in a moment. But why does any idea matter? And, and I referenced there, 2 Corinthians 10, 5. We take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ as believers. So that's kind of like the easy cop-out kind of Jesus question, answer to the question. Social issues matter in the same way that it matters whether you make your bed. and It matters what you have for dinner on some level. Everything matters. And, and, as, and as Christians submitted to the rule and reign of Jesus over every part of the universe, it is our responsibility to acknowledge that God is not neutral about anything, and did he care what color shirt I wore today? Probably not. But we need to ask, we need to be aware of the the fact that we take literally every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, because there's a constant war between truth and lies, and we want to be on the side of truth. And the danger is navigating, walking through life as if my opinion is the final say. We take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ as opposed to taking every thought captive to the obedience of Joseph or fill your, put your own name in the blank. That's the difference. Because if we navigate life thinking the most important thing that matters is what I think and my motives and my intentions and how this is going to affect me, that's a problem. So we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And so when we have an opinion about anything, we go to scripture and we evaluate whether scripture applies to this in some way. And, and that's the first question. Does God care? If God cares, I care. Now, do I think God cares about what color my shirt was today? No, which is why I didn't spend a lot of time on that. <laughs> right? But if it's, if it's a question that God does care about and that he would have something to say, then we have to care about it as well. So that's the first answer to this question, and it's very vague. But I think it's, a, uh, it's very general, I'll say But I think it's an important foundation as a way to just process in general. Now, a question. As we talk about why social issues matter, let's acknowledge why we're even having this conversation. Because there's a lot of people who don't want to talk about social issues, right? And within right-wing conservative politics, and based on what I know about this group in this room, most people in here would fall on that side of the spectrum. And there is a debate. And there's a divide, I'll say, between economic issues and social issues, or at least there is an attempt to, to act as if there is a divide. And uh, there are some people, in my experience, is that those who uh, really prefer to work on the economic stuff sometimes look down their nose at the people who prefer the social moral issues because they want to just, you know, create a theocracy and make everybody be like them and, and control everyone's lives, Right? So that's what we social conservatives are, uh, are sometimes accused of doing. But I think there's a different answer really to why these, for everybody, why, why a lot of people want to avoid social issues. And that is because they are difficult. They are difficult issues to talk about. Because when we talk about, it, now it's gender and trans, transgenderism, certainly the whole race, social justice conversation is, is seen as a social issue, abortion. Marriage, the whole sexual revolution, the slate of sexual revolution issues, homosexuality, all of that stuff. These are difficult issues to talk about because they implicate ultimate truths. They also, there's lots and lots of room to be accused of being a hypocrite when you talk about these things. When you defend a moral standard of any kind you can be confused, and probably accurately, of hypocrisy. And on the hypocrisy subject, I will encourage all of us not to be afraid of being a hypocrite. And I'm going to qualify that quickly. Because I'm not saying what I might sound like I'm saying. I'm not saying live by a different standard than you preach. But what I am saying is have standards that you have failed to reach in your life. Because if the standards in your life you have always managed to keep, they're probably not very high standards. Because we're all imperfect and we're all sinners and we've had moments of weakness. And it is very comfortable and it's easy to not have any standards. Therefore, I have no opportunity to fail my standards. I will never be accused of being a hypocrite because I don't believe anything is wrong. And by virtue of that, I don't believe anything is right, because vice and virtue are two sides of the same coin, and if you have no vice, you have no virtue. So I think that one of the reasons we are so inclined to avoid social issues is because they're difficult to talk about, personally and interpersonally. But I will also say that as a general rule in life, and I have yet to find an exception to this, the conversations in your life that you most want to avoid are the conversations in your life that are most important for you to have. And just wait till you get married. <laughs> right? And, and and that's probably true with your parents and you probably have friends like that. I don't want to talk about that. And the intensity with which you don't want to talk about it is inversely correlated to the importance of you having that conversation. And in various ways, you probably are like, yeah, that's actually probably <coughs> true. But I still don't want to talk about it, right? So this is why I think in some ways we don't want to talk about social issues. There's another thing here that I've hinted at, but this idea. My guess is some of us in this room have expressed this at various points, and all of us in this room have heard it at their various points. You can't legislate morality, and social issues are infused with moral truth claims about reality. What is right, what is wrong, what is desirable, what is undesirable, what is good, what is wrong. And people will say, we should avoid those. Abortion. We shouldn't legislate morality. Now, why is that a problem? Because, what I will argue to you, and I've argued this to many other people, and I've had nobody successfully convince me otherwise, so I continue to hold the position that... It is impossible not to legislate morality. All legislation is moral legislation. The example that I like to use that I think illustrates this point most effectively is speed limits. Now, probably, unless there is an anarchist in the room or a real libertarian, and sometimes I have a hard time distinguishing between those categories. Sorry if I've offended somebody in here, and I'm sure I have,
1: that's why I said it.
0: Back in the corner, and they're always in the back corner, right? That's where the libertarians sit. It's exactly how that works. Yeah, I'm sorry, buddy. I'll I'll make up for that later. Speed limits. We probably have no objection, in principle, to the idea that there are speed limits. Speed limit conversations are not controversial in the way that like, same-sex marriage or abortion issues is. Why? Because there's generally shared agreement about, yeah, it's good that people don't drive 90 miles an hour, down my street where my kids are playing in the driveway, right? That's, that's good, but we haven't thought about why. We think about the truth claims, the moral claims taken in the abortion discussion, but we don't think about the truth claims made in the speed limit conversation because we all agree, what are they? There's a handful of them. First, human life is worth protecting. That is a value embedded in the fact that we have speed limits. Second, it would be an, a risk, an inappropriate risk to human life if somebody was allowed to drive 90 miles an hour down a residential street where a kid might be chasing a ball that just rolled out from his driveway. Therefore, it is wrong, which is a moral claim, to drive down that, lot, to drive down that road at that speed because of the risk that it, that it poses to human life. So we ban it right and nobody objects nobody marches even if we think ah, it should be 30 rather than 25 and you know the transportation people do those studies and try to figure out what's the best speed limit but there is no mass movement saying we should get rid of speed limits because they are legislating morality though they are legislating morality we just happen to agree on the moral claims that underlie the speed limit law so it is for every single law. I defy you to find a, 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 a exception to this rule. I mean, and I worked in my past legislative life, worked on the transportation committee, and we dealt with some really boring things, right? <laughs> like, you know, storage sheds for school buses, and the funding of those things. And there's marginal tax rate discussions, and there's, I mean, certainly the entire environmental category of laws is all the moral claim that we have to protect the planet, we have to protect the earth, we have to protect the air, we have to protect the water. It's all a moral position. So, all that to say, when we are talking about whether we should legislate morality, the people who say that to you are not telling you that because they don't actually want you to legislate their morality. They want you to be quiet and sit down and shut up so they can legislate their morality. Because they just have a different moral claim that they are making. So, in all of public policy, it's not about if morality is going to be legislated. It's about whose morality is going to be legislated. And you should not feel in any sense embarrassed by saying, yes, this is a moral claim and I think it is true. And we should not talk about whether it's appropriate to legislate morality or not. What the real, helpful, more important conversation is, is whose understanding of morality is accurate and whose understanding of morality will better lead to human flourishing, all right? So that's I, I think that the argument about legislating morality is an attempt really to dodge the, the, the merits of the issue. Because oftentimes the pe- person you're discussing doesn't want to defend the merits of the issue. They just want to disqualify you from stating your position, so then there's a vacuum they can fill by default. Now. Social issues versus economic issues. This is generally the divide that I, that I see created in why we have this category of social issues. I've never even really seen somebody fully try to like define what these categories are. And I'm not even going to spend the time on that at this moment. But we all kind of have this vague sense of what's an economic issue dealing with money? What's a social issue dealing with kind of society, maybe family, morality, however you want to uh, categorize that. Now why do we care about in, in, in talking about why social issues matter in this dispute, if we want to refer to it that way, Why do we care about economic issues? We're talking about social issues. Why do we care about economic issues as a category? Anybody have an answer to that. Why do we care about economic issues? Economic issues also play a role in the human of society.: They do. Yeah, she said economic issues play a role in the human flourishing. That's true. Basically, every candidate campaign, right, it's I want education, good jobs, and a strong economy, and maybe they'll talk about transportation if they live in a major city that has transportation issues, right? That's kind of the platform. Why does everybody want to talk about a strong economy and good jobs? Yes, sir. Everybody needs money. That now I will agree with that. Why does everybody need money? Yes, ma'am. What's that? Yeah, you gotta eat. You gotta pay. What are we paying for? And I'm I'm getting somewhere with this. An education. Okay. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Yes. And and I'll give you a hint. There's a there's a there's a term that's very popular now, like living wage it's, it's it's the UBI, the universal basic income, like a living wage job. What do we mean by that? I guess I mean we're being paid and we're we're paying these things essentially to live. Yes.
1: So I mean if we're talking about morality, like essentially we yeah. need that money to live.
0: We want to live, yeah. Yes, ma'am? Did you have something oh. to that? Okay? A lot of the way, a lot of times when we talk about economic issues and why this matters is because people just want to support their family, right? Economic issues don't matter because there's like this transcendent moral goodness in having a huge bank account, right? the reason why we all kind of ultimately understand that economic issues matter is cuz it's really good if dads can pay for their kids and put a roof over their head and give them some food and maybe once in a while go on vacation and buy them a christmas present the reason economic issues matter is because we want human flourishing and we want the ability to support the families which make strong societies cuz you need good people what what's what's the you have government, you have the church, and you have the family. Which of those institutions is powerless to create good people? Government. government. What is the most important thing you need to have a strong community? Good people. And who's the last place on earth that can do that? The government. So what do you need in order to create good people? You need strong families. And what, is strong, what do families need? Yeah, they need some income. Now. A strong family unit can overcome a lack of resources. But a weak family unit with a lot of money is going to lose to the poor family unit that's intact with good values all day, every day. Because ultimately, money is not the thing that matters most. So in this conversation about economic issues and social issues, what matters more? Social issues. So I, I, okay, I'll look back up here. So the three reasons why, and I'm gonna answer the question, three reasons why social issues matter. And the first one is that social issues make a bigger impact. Social issues make a bigger impact. You could say social issues matter more. We've hinted at this a little bit. What matters more for a person's success? The strength of their 401k or the strength of their marriage? The answer to that, I think, is pretty obvious. But it's the strength of their marriage. And this is, again, pitting an economic issue versus a social issue, kind of. Now, are we anti-strong 401Ks? Of course not. But if you have to make the choice between a strong marriage and a strong 401K when it comes to human flourishing, strong community, strong people, the choice here is obvious. In the same way, if we are dealing with somebody, what's a bigger problem? Somebody who has substance abuse, addiction problems, or somebody who just bounced a check because they're broke. Now we know that substance abuse and bankruptcy are actually related. Whether bankruptcy drives you to substance abuse sometimes or substance abuse drives you to bankruptcy, that can be a two-way street. But when we have to make the choice between giving somebody money or freeing them from the prisons of addiction, The better thing for them is not the money, it's to be freed from the addiction. So, social issues also have a really big, and this is the second reason why social issues matter. Social issues have a huge economic impact. Almost $22 trillion has been spent since President Johnson declared his war on poverty in 1964. $22 trillion. And yet the poverty rate, which had dramatically decreased in the two decades prior to the war on poverty, has been consistent in the 50 years since the war on poverty started, somewhere between 12 and 15%. Now, there's been, COVID has a weird little impact on some of this data but broadly speaking over the last half a century we have spent 22 trillion dollars as taxpayers trying to get people out of poverty and basically accomplished nothing with that because what you've seen at the same time is a lot of tearing of the fabric of the social structure of our society and no amount of money can compensate for Broken people that come from broken families that create more broken people and create more broken families. Money cannot compensate for that. How do we avoid poverty? Some of you may be familiar with the the success sequence is what it is. And this is for young people who talk about this. Actually, I heard Rick Santorum talk about this a lot in, in years past. How to avoid poverty in America? And that's an important qualifier because things are different in other parts of the world, right, but in America, if you graduate from high school, get married before you have kids, and you're at least 20 before you have a child, if you do those three things, there is only an 8% chance that you will ever be in poverty in America. 8% chance, right? These things are not rocket science. This is not particularly difficult or complex to accomplish, right? Most people can do these things. However, if you don't graduate high High school if you don't get married before you have kids and you have a kid before you are 20 you have a 79% chance of being in poverty right it's a big difference 8% 79% it's not about money it's about a few key decisions And certainly these are harder things to accomplish, depending on where you've come from, these are harder things to accomplish for some than for others. But that's not impossible for anybody in America. But it just helps you understand how the decisions that we make, the structure that we come from has a big impact on the success of our lives. And what happens if you're in poverty when it comes to the economic issues, the size of the government, the size of the social welfare net net that needs to be created to pick up the pieces from that? Because the children who are born to these people who are having children before they're 20 are now another person that we have to be accounting for. And they also end up needing resources because we do care about them. And it just is, it's a cycle that perpetuates. So this is how we can avoid poverty. We'll talk also some of the solutions to this. If you knew, now in, in in the social issues conversation, if you went up to somebody and said, hey, I can basically guarantee, I can eliminate... Poverty. They can eliminate poverty. Do you want to know the answer to that? All you have to do is graduate high school, not have sex with people you're not married to, and then get married and, and, and then have kids. Who's interested in that? Everybody's interested in that until you find out you're just not supposed to have sex with people you're not married to. So if we're going to have a bunch of poor people and the sexual revolution, if, if it's either or, we're going to choose the sexual revolution today. Because the cost of not expressing ourselves sexually in any way we want, whenever we want, however we want, is perceived as too high. Even though the data shows pretty clearly it is the foundation of many of our social ills. But many of the people that you go to school with, know with people in your family, maybe some people in this room would say, the idea that we would discourage all sexual activity outside of marriage is too high of a cost, even if it means the prevention of poverty. Because expressive individualism is even more important than the eradication of poverty for enlightened Americans, postmodernists, post truthers. So, the solution, the, the, the corollary to this, of course, is the benefits of marriage, which are vast. Marriage reduces reliance on food stamps. Only 4% of homes with a married mother and father are on food stamps at any given time. 4%. But 21% of cohabiting and 28% of single mother homes require such public assistance. Big difference. Marriage increases home ownership. 78% of married people own their own home, a central goal goal to achieving the American dream, while only 41% of cohabiting adults and 44% of singles do. And that speaks to kind of stability and also economic, just owning a home is, is uh, a huge economic advantage in, in, in our country. Marriage prevents poverty better than cohabiting. The U.S. Census Bureau finds that the poverty rate for children living with two unmarried cohabiting parents is more similar to that of a single mother home than to those living with their married mother and father. And this is important. Oh, it's just a piece of paper. Actually, the data says that's not true. You may think it's just a piece of paper, but it turns out that it's a piece of paper that matters a lot because of what those commitments mean. One of my favorite data points here, even shotgun weddings are good for keeping people out of poverty. (laughs) Robert Lerman, who's an economist at the Urban Institute, said that women who are married between pregnancy and the birth of their first child average a 30% higher income to needs ratio and a 15% lower degree of financial volatility. And we won't get into the details of what that means. But the point is, shotgun weddings help people avoid poverty, right? So you can minimize the damage. You have the benefits of marriage, but you also have the costs of divorce. Divorce costs about $2,500 to just like pay your lawyer on average. You can get it, I mean, if depending on the size of your estate, it can be much, much more than that. But on average, a divorce costs $2,500. But a new single-parent family with children costs the government twenty dollars to $30,000 a year. Family fragmentation costs taxpayers $1 trillion each decade. Just picking up the pieces, from mental health services to the criminal justice system to addiction to the um, educational special need program. There's all sorts of educational ramifications. Um, kids who come from, from broken homes just have a, a difficult time, um, educationally as well as otherwise as well. Related to this, the cost of absent fathers, and there's a lot you can say here. Children in father-absent homes are almost four times more likely to be poor, and they're also more likely to to deal with mental illness. They're more likely to deal with substance abuse. They're more likely to end up in prison, all sorts of things. Child poverty, and this this is about a decade old, this trend, but here it compares married couple families, which is the red, to female-headed households, children in poverty. You'll see that they're basically somewhere between four and five times more likely to be in poverty if they are raised by a single mother uh, compared to a, a married couple family. Here's another one. Sexually transmitted diseases. You don't think about the economic cost of this, and I don't think that's frankly the biggest cost of this. But it's something to like just point out. There's 19.7 million new diseases each year. Going back to the whole like not having sex with people you aren't married to, right? I mean, not only can you avoid like, having children out of wedlock, you can avoid having other things that are undesirable as well by exercising some self-control. $15.6 billion to the healthcare system just because um, of those infections so the point is that personal choices have social costs and that is a that is a reality that our culture just kind of resists because autonomy self-expression living your truth being your authentic self is now the highest value and it is verboten in many senses to even acknowledge the costs of living authentically Put that in scare quotes because it should be in scare quotes, right? If that's authentic, it's dangerously authentic. Now, the third reason why social issues matter and why they're foundational. Social issues reveal our worldview. And in order to make this point and how this affects kind of our political conversations, I want to introduce worldview uh, very quickly and provide a quick introduction to worldview so you don't understand uh, what I'm saying when I when I discuss worldview. Some of you may have seen this before, this graphic. Who's right? Anybody have a have an opinion about that? Who's correct? Yes, ma'am? It appears that they're both right because they come from different perspectives. OK. One possible answer? Yes, sir? It depends on what number is bound on the other side. OK. You've got a 5 and a 7 there, That's probably 6. Well, what if there is no number? Yeah? You're looking for a point of reference, right, to tell us which way is up, which way is down? Yes, sir? It depends on the intent of the person who made it. He says it depends on the intent of the person who made it. OK. We're going to answer this in just a second. We'll come back to it. Because to me, the answer to this, this, this it, it, it's more than just resolving whether this is a six or a nine. It's a function of worldview. What is worldview? Worldview is our assumptions about origin, meaning, morality, and destiny are assumptions about the nature of reality. And I assume some of you have sat through uh, various conversations about worldview. This is not the only definition of worldview. It is one that I like and I like use and I think it's helpful. But if you've heard another one, it doesn't mean I'm wrong or they're wrong. <laughs> but what are these questions? Origin, the assumptions that we all come. Everybody has a worldview. Most people are not conscious of their worldview, but everyone navigates life, walks through their daily decisions, operating under a certain set of assumptions about origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. The question about origin, where did I come from? What are the possible answers to this question? Theoretically. Nothing. I came from nothing. I emerged from a primordial ooze over eons of time. A series of very fortunate mutations led to me. That is one. And actually, a lot of people believe that. A lot of people. What's another possible explanation? Yes, ma'am? Coming from God. God created us, yes. Those are probably the two biggest. Are there any others that people are aware of? Why does it matter? I'm sorry? a nihilistic one. Why does it matter Who cares? Yeah, you can say I'm, I'm not even going to entertain the question, because I don't care. It gets in a little about the second one as well. Yes, sir? If you watch the history <laughs> yes. No. Directed transpermia is, is a is a theory because it's it's hard to explain how something came from nothing, which the materialist explanation requires. But of course, it does beg the question where the aliens come from, yes. right? So I don't think it ends the inquiry at all. There's now there's like multiverses, right? Anybody gone down that rabbit trail, right? The multiverse, multiverses, and okay. So there's different explanations, okay? Meaning. Does my life matter, and why? What are the possible answers to this question? Yes, ma'am. Um, from a biblical Christian perspective, the meaning would be, you matter because you're made in the image of God, yeah. and because of that, you are ordained. Yeah. Okay. How would our nihilist friend answer this? <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, exactly right, right? It doesn't really... Does my life have meaning? No, it doesn't. Yes, ma'am. I was going to say we're all going to die anyway, which is why does my life matter? So people might say that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Any other? Yes, sir. Uh, from a New Age perspective, enlightenment would be the... Enlightenment? Yeah. Yes, sir. for be just eating be very... that is you said. Yeah. Yes, sir. Right. Not that, so I don't matter. Yeah. And in that framework, we basically get to create our own meaning. Life has meaning to the extent that we give it meaning, right? If like being wealthy gives my life meaning, then that's what gives my life meaning. If being happy gives my life meaning, that's what gives makes me happy. Whatever it is. Yes ma'am. Yeah, and, and there's, a, there's a lot of people who would say, and this, I mean, out of good intentions, and it's very altruistic, my life has matter, my life has meaning, and it matters because I do things for other people. I make other people's lives better. I serve other people, and that's what gives me meaning, and, right? And it's almost a Christian ethic. I mean, it's very closely related to that because you, you, he who seeks to save his life will lose it, and he who seeks to give his life will find it. Yeah, and then once they, and the challenge behind that is once they cease to be useful, once they find themselves in a, uh, they're handicapped or in their retirement zone, then suddenly their life doesn't have meaning, I guess, right? So there's different answers to this question, which dramatically uh, affect how people live. Morality, how do I know what is right and wrong? What are the answers to this question? Yes, sir? It's all relative anyway, so. Nothing is right and wrong, right? It's just a matter of opinion. Yeah, yes, sir? Whatever doesn't harm other people. That is a very common standard. Yes, sir. The Bible determines. God determines what is right and wrong. Yeah. Uh, Societal standards. Yeah. Gallup polls (laughs) determine what is right and wrong. Right? There's a lot of of people who believe that. That 50 years ago it was wrong. Now it's right because we've had a moral revolution. Destiny. What happens when I die? What are the alternative explanations to this question? Yes, ma'am. Like reincarnation. Reincarnation. Yep. Because if I'm bad, I come back as a raccoon. And if I'm good, I come back as Bernie Sanders. (laughs) That's what it is. Nothing. Nothing happens when I die. I fade to black. There is no other side. There's no life after death. Yes, ma'am?
1: Heaven.
0: Heaven. Heaven or hell. Eternal judgment. Some kind of reckoning after we die because our souls live eternally. Right? Those are generally those categories. Now... When we break this down, it shouldn't be difficult to see how somebody who believes that I was created in the image of God, my life has meaning because I was created in the image of God, God is the final authority and determines what is right and wrong for me and the entire universe, and I will stand before him when I die and give account for every word, thought, and deed. That, if, you, if, th- if those are your set of assumptions about the nature of reality, you are going to live differently than somebody who believes that I'm the result of a series of random mutations over eons of time that were very fortunate for me, but ultimately my life has no meaning other than meaning that I might ascribe to it because I get some sorts of pleasure or satisfaction from something. Right and wrong is simply a matter of opinion. There's no ultimate truth to find out if my opinion is right because there's no authority above me, and I give account to no one or nothing when I die because there is nothing after I die because I'm simply vapor. Now... Are those people going to live differently? They are. They're going to live very differently. Now, the meta-narrative of what Scripture says about the human story. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. This is basically what the gospel says to us about all of history. Creation happened, God created it, and it was good. First two chapters of Genesis, we have a perfect world. It's our window into a perfect world. By the way, they worked in a perfect world, which is disappointment to Some, all of my children. They hate it when I point the fact out that work is part of the perfect world, not part of the fall. God created the world, but it broke because sin entered the world. And then Jesus incarnated and solved the problem by redeeming us and setting us back in right relationship with God. And our hope ultimately is in a restored, new heaven, new earth, new creation that God's going to make once he has done away with sin and evil. That is the hope of the Christian story. It's the beginning and the end, history, which of course just fits neatly in this tiny sliver of eternity. But this is not the only story, because we also have a woke worldview. Instead of creation, we have some form of evolution or naturalism, The problem in the world is not sin that entered the world in the fall. It's injustice. Most of which, or all of which, is systemic. We solve the problem, not redemption of our sins through Jesus, but revolution, which can only happen politically. And so our hope is not in a restored heaven and earth that God creates for us once he's put away evil and sin. But it's in utopia here and now because this is all there is. And we can't possibly hope for anything else. And if this is your framework, how much do you care about politics? A lot. lot. Right? A lot. Because people on both sides of these stories have something in common. They understand there's a problem, and they want to help be part of the solution. But they have radically different understandings of what the problem is, therefore they have a radically different proposed solution. And these are the things that we think are part of political conversations. Now let's go back to this really quickly. How do we apply our assumptions about origin, meaning, morality, and destiny? Is there any way to resolve this? And actually, is is it Dylan? I think you got us there already, so for the sake of time, why don't you say what you said one more time? And he says, the answer depends on the intent of the maker. And that is an assumption that you are making about the origin of this digit. If we know for certain that the location of this digit no other human has ever been to. And so it could not have been created purposefully. Can we know what it is? Can we know that? No. I think the answer to that is no, because there's no... But if there is a creator, if it's on the city sidewalk somewhere, and we come across this, and we're confused and we don't know, is there a way to find out what it is and what it means? We go find the person who put it there and ask them, which direction is up? So it is with you and me. So it is with our bodies. So it is with our families. What is the significance of this? What does this mean? We have the luxury of not having to just speculate endlessly because we can consult with the person who put it there, assuming you believe that such a person exists. And for those of us who know he does exist, it's incredibly helpful. For those who deny his existence, it's very confusing, which is why you have a whole bunch of people now who cannot tell the difference between men and women. But how else does this interact with our politics? So now, and this is all a com- part of our conversation, our third point about why so- social issues matter, because social issues reveal our worldview. What do you think of when you see this sign? My body, my choice. What's that? Abortion, Abortion right? Because, it's the claim, I belong to myself. I'm not responsible. When you think about origin, meaning, morality, and destiny, I was created not necessarily from anything, but even if I was created from something, my life has meaning such as I assign it. I'm ultimately the final arbiter of what is right and wrong. My body, my choice. My body, my choice is not merely a political slogan. My body, my choice is a statement of faith that has claims about origin, meaning, morality, and destiny that underlie their worldview and the way they see everything. And that's why it became the anthem for the abortion movement. However, I suggest that it's more pervasive than that. What do you think of when you think of this? What comes to mind when you see the symbol? LGBTQ. LGBTQ++++++. Plus, 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 plus. <laughs> I actually think we're about to see it represented by an infinity sign. Because everything else is exclusive of something. And you can't be exclusive in any way. So I think an infinity sign is the only thing that's appropriate. But what are the claims being made in this? I belong to myself. I determine what is right and wrong. I give my life meaning to the extent that things are fulfilling for me or not. What are they basically saying? My body, my choice. What do we have going on here? Transgenderism. This whole idea that... I determine reality for myself. My body is not a guide to anything worth knowing. My body is not something I am formed by. It's something I'm oppressed by. And so I do not allow the conventions to force me to deny my truth and live on inauthentically. Because I came from nothing, or if I came from something, he doesn't care what I do. I give my life meaning, I determine what is right and wrong, and I'm not accountable to anyone or anything for what I do. My body, my choice. Physician assisted suicide. You're basically dealing with the same arguments. Because my life only has meaning to the extent that I assign it meaning, and because the purpose of my body and my life is to be happy, and now that my body, either physically or psychologically, is no longer accomplishing its goal, of making me feel happy, I should have the freedom and the right and you all should celebrate it along with me to end that life because it is no longer accomplishing the goal that I have assigned to it. My body, my choice. Sex work is work and I predict that this will be an emerging political issue. On what basis do you deny someone the freedom to commoditize their body if their life in existence is an accident, they determine what is right and wrong for themselves, and they have determined living authentically, and they have told you that this provides them either the greatest happiness or just simply the most money which gives them the greatest happiness. And who are you to tell them they should not be able to do that? After all, my body, my choice, right? Another reason why this matters, in our conversations about political stuff, I think it's important to understand what the debate actually is because on the left and the right, this is not about intentions and it's not about intelligence. People on both sides of these issues are smart, and people on some of them, and people on both sides of these issues have good intentions, almost all of them. And and so what describes the different conclusions that we reach? Our different worldviews as determined by our different assumptions about the nature of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. That's what explains these differences. So even within your church, you find somebody who disagrees with you on these things and you don't understand. I would suggest that the most helpful thing that you could do in that conversation is don't discuss your difference of opinion about homosexuality is ask them a few questions. Where do you think we came from? Where do you think the meaning of our life is determined? Who determines what is right and wrong? What do you think happens when we die? And what you will likely find is that even people who profess to be Christians have embraced a set of assumptions, particularly around meaning and morality, that are heavily influenced by secularism. And they might say, yeah, God determines what is right and wrong, but we can't really know what that is. It's just too vague and it's too difficult, so ultimately we gotta just sort that through ourselves. Because we can't know. Which is another version of saying, I determine for myself what is right and wrong. If we don't agree on the, fund- on the fundamentals, if we don't agree on the launch point, we're gonna land someplace very different, and that shouldn't be surprising. But with respect to all of these issues, because these are worldview claims, if the Bible is not true, if the woke a set of assumptions about reality were accidents, meaning only comes from what we give it, we determine right and wrong for ourselves and we're not accountable to anyone after we die. If those things are true, this whole slate of revolution, sexual revolutionary issues should lead to widespread joy and happiness because they are living their truth, they are living authentically, they have thrown off the bonds of oppression, that social constructs have been a forcing on humanity, we, are, we have never been freer Therefore, there should never have been a time when we were happier. But what do we actually find? What we find is that the people who are working hardest to be happy are the most miserable. And that's actually a truism, another one that I've kind of discovered in life. The harder you work to be happy, the more miserable you will be. Why is that? Because in the actual world, in the world God created, we were not created to please ourselves. We were created to please him and find infinite indescribable joy in the process. Which is why the worldview that tells us, follow your heart, that's the path to happiness, leads to the greatest misery. So if the Bible is true, all of these things lead to pain. Which is, I think, pretty easy to support with the data at this point. The last thing I'll say. A metaphor, which I think, and again, the larger topic here, is why do social issues matter? Social issues matter because what happens inside of us is more important than what happens outside of us. C.S. Lewis said this in his book, Mere Christianity. He talked about ships at sea. He said, the voyage, and he was talking about humanity as a set of ships, an armada of ships sailing across the sea together. And he said, the voyage will be a success only... In the first place, if the ships do not collide and get in another's way. And secondly, if each ship is seaworthy and has her engines in good order. As a matter of fact, you cannot have either of these two things without the other. If the ships keep on having collisions, they will not remain seaworthy very long. On the other hand, if their steering gears are out of order, they will not be able to avoid collisions the reason social issues matter is because they are the steering gears. And if they are out of order, all you will get is collision upon collision upon collision. And look around, I think that's exactly what we have. What happens inside of us matters more than what happens around us. Thank you for listening to the Forge Leadership Podcast. If you like the show, please drop a review in your podcast app and be sure to subscribe for all our latest episodes. You can follow the Forge Leadership Network at Forge Leadership on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. For more information about Forge programming, please visit forgeleadership.org.